Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive episode where we interview an analyst, portfolio manager, or another investor to discuss a single stock, industry, or even, I guess, a broad topic. And today we have on the show George Lovatis. He is the portfolio manager at Upslope Capital. And this is kind of a unique episode because we typically try to look at an individual business, but with George, we recently came across his presentation on short selling, and we thought it was a good kind of short selling 101 for people that aren't that familiar with the process. And so we asked George a bunch of questions about all things short selling, how to target different shorts, what to look for, what kind of red flags to try to identify in potential uh, short positions. And then we also talk about his long book. It's a long, short fund. So we also look at kind of what he's trying to identify for potential long positions and what his holding periods are, and really just general strategy for running an overall long, short fund and some of the personal challenges or personal advice that he would give to potential fund operators or uh, fund managers. So this is a fun one, I guess nothing else to add here. So without further ado, here's our interview with George Lovatis. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. Today, we are joined by first-time guest, George Lovatis, Portfolio Manager at Upslope Capital. We spoke, if you're a regular listener, we spoke a little bit about a presentation he created, I think, in June, and we we spoke about it last week on the power hour around short selling and some of the misconceptions. And so George reached out and he was gracious enough to give us some of his time to talk about both his career and then that short selling uh, segment we want to touch on as well. So not our typical interview, not any specific deep dive on an individual company, but we're going to get to, I think some unique topics that we don't usually talk that much about here, but let's start with you, George. First of all, welcome to the show and kind of give us Thank some you. backgrounds. <laughs> give us some backgrounds on your career. How'd you get into investing? How did you end up deciding to start Upslope Capital? Yeah. So uh, th- thank you guys for having me. Um, I mean, my career, I, I sort of divided into pretty pretty standard in some ways. First half was more investment banking oriented. Second half is investing. Um, I'd say I, re- I really was a, a bit of a late bloomer to investing in the buy side. I, uh, I wasn't somebody reading, you know, Buffett letters when I was 12 years old or something like that. I, uh, if I could point to sort of one moment that really got me hooked, it was, it was frankly the financial crisis. Um, I happened to be in business school, uh, right, right smack in the middle of the financial crisis. And I just remember being glued to my screen, um, no idea what I was actually doing with my own account, but but kind of doing my best to try to navigate it and um, protect protect my, the money that I had and and try to make a little. Um, and so I think that was that was a a key moment for me that that you know it sort of clicked for me that it was something that I really wanted to do long term. 
Um, and I think it, it also hammered home that, you know, I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't going to be a long only investor. I, I like to have all the other tools available. Um, so th- I'd say that, that sort of got it in my head. Um, it took me some time even after that to, I think to, to acknowledge to myself that that's what I really wanted to do. So kind of coming out of business school, I, I hit out in investment banking for a few more years um, and then moved over to research uh, at uh, Bank of Montreal, um, where I covered the packaging sector for a little bit um, before kind of pulling the Band-Aid and, and jumping to a, a buy side role at a, a startup long short fund. So. All right. And how did you start Upslope? How how long has that been around? And maybe give yeah. any sort of what's your guys' basic philosophy over there? Yeah. So I I so I worked for, as I mentioned, I I worked for a startup long short fund. I only did that for about a year. Um, and uh, you know, was was kind of itching to to do my own thing. I I, you know, have have my own investment philosophy. And I I've, you know, I, I think given that I was a late bloomer, I was kind of eager to to get going with it. Um, and so after about a year at that fund, I, I, you know, asked them if I could sort of start my own strategy, um, raise some friends and family money. Um, and so that was in 2016. Um, and then I sort of formally spun out and formed Upslope in 2017. Um, the strategy is really, really a classic long short, uh, equity hedge fund strategy, uh, fairly concentrated long book, usually kind of 10 plus names. Uh, and then shorts, uh, will, I'm sure we'll get into it a lot, but uh, shorts are a lot more diversified, you know, usually 20, 20 to 30 or, or more at, at times. Um, have generally a mid-cap focus, uh, pretty global. So, you know, I'd say longs are majority US, but do a fair amount in uh, Western and Northern Europe as well. All right. Yeah. And that it does lead into what we're going to talk about today, which is short selling, but I would say, and maybe I'd guess about 90% of the listeners, maybe more, don't actually understand how short selling works. I don't think Uh, Ryan and I maybe understand a little bit, but we definitely don't understand it fully either. uh, Can you explain, before we get into kind of the details of your presentation, can you explain the basics of shorting? How does it work for you guys when you're, say, going into a example position here? Yeah, I mean, so I think when I think of short selling, I think um, first of all, I sort of divide it into two broad categories that I think most most people may be confused sometimes. So I think there's a big difference between hedging, so shorting indexes, you know, shorting SPY or or you know a, a major index versus shorting individual stocks. Um, the the former I think of is is really kind of a form of insurance where. You know, you're sometimes it pays off, sometimes it doesn't. In general, you know, markets go up over time, and you're going to lose money doing that. And maybe maybe that's okay because, like I said, it's an insurance policy. Um, individual shorts, so betting against individual companies, you know, betting on them doing poorly or or derating or you know going down effectively. Um, you know, that's the the goal there is to to make money. Um, it's not it's not just a you know, insurance policy that you expect will will lose lose you money over time. Um, in reality, obviously, it's really hard to you know you're you're fighting a, a rising market over the long run, so it's it's a tough game. But um, that's that's the goal of, of individual shorts. Um, you know, where you're picking companies that you you either believe you know fundamentals are deteriorating. You think it's a we'll, we'll go in all these, I'm sure, but 
fads and frauds, th- things like that, where something you think is going to break with the stock or that will cause the stock to go down in, in some form. Um, okay. Or go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I guess just, just in terms of how it fits in, you know, with the long short strategy. Um, I mean, I, I think of it as, as a way to, so you can reduce market risk. So in, in theory, Depends on the strategy, but in theory, you could you could use shorts to sort of enable you to get longer, so you can have more longs on at a time than you might be comfortable otherwise. Um, I don't personally go go you know so you know I think some funds are are levered long against some shorts. Um, that's not my strategy, but in theory, you could do it. Um, and I think in general, it's it's a good it's a good kind of blunt mechanism for managing volatility and and market risk. So. Okay. And I think some listeners are aware of this, but I just want to catch up any of the beginners here. What are like, what is mechanically happening when you're saying, I want to short this thing? How are you, you know, you're Uh probably going to the broker. What is like literally happening? What is exchanging hands? Why are you getting the cash in? What security are you getting? What Uh are they, you know, all, all that stuff. Cause I think people are very, it's, it's a little yeah. bit backwards, but at its core, it's not truly that hard. People are probably yeah. imagining buying put options, I think is probably what a lot of people guess. So yeah. maybe the actual mechanics. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I'll probably do a poor job of explaining the behind the scenes stuff at, at the brokers for for actual, you know, what, what happens with the short. But effectively, you're borrowing shares, you know, and, and promising to buy them back at a later date. Um, you know, ideally you, you get to decide when that later date is, uh, sometimes, um, the broker, you know, you can lose your borrow that you have on a short, um, that, that happens pretty rarely. Um, but it happens with really, you know, really, really heavily shorted stocks where there's no borrow available anymore all of a sudden. Um, so in my experience, that's, it's probably only happened a handful of times. Um, and it's usually not a total shock when it does happen. Um, but so in general, I, I think maybe one way to to lay it out in layman's terms. So when I when you short a stock, um, if when you pull up your account on Interactive Brokers or wherever, you'll literally see you know minus two hundred shares, um, you know next to the position, you know or, or however many shares you're short, um, and then you'll receive the cash proceeds in your account as well. Um, so you've you've effectively sold that stock even though you you never owned it in the first place, but you have the negative share count as sort of a, a liability that you'll you'll have to buy back at some point. I don't know if yeah. that actually explains it, but there there there's a lot more to it that uh that you know I'm sure I'm either not explaining well or, or that I don't even understand, frankly, um, you know, all of the the nitty-gritty details, but at a high level, that's kind of how it works. Yeah, it, it to me, and it's sort of like the when people explain the Federal Reserve, I think you can explain it. But for some people, you know, I think almost everyone you need to explain multiple times before we, yeah. uh, before you actually understand it. But I want to talk about a fun question here, and maybe we could do, we could probably do a whole podcast on this. But what are some of the misconceptions out there about shorting stocks that you've seen? 
Chit Chat Money is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Designed for active traders and sophisticated investors, Interactive Brokers offers trading assets in 150 markets with 27 different currencies. They charge USD margin loan rates from 5.83% to 6.83%, rated the lowest among margin fees. The ability to trade stocks, bonds, options, futures, commodities, and more with high interest rates paid on instantly available cash balances, plus the ability to lend your eligible stock shares to earn passive income all on one single unified platform. That is why we at Chit Chat Money use IBKR and wouldn't use anything else. Restrictions apply. For more information, visit ibkr.com slash info, member SIPC. Open an account with IBKR today. Yeah. So I think what well, I think there there are a lot of them, certainly. Uh I wrote some notes down on this in advance. Um, so I think probably one of the biggest ones is I think people that don't short tend to assume that you only short a stock if you think it's going to zero. Um and that's you know, that's clearly not the case. There, there are there's a pretty wide variety of shorts. Um, you know. The assumption that you only short frauds or fads or, you know, that there's something nefarious with anything that's short that, you know, that you're shorting, that's that's not necessarily true. You can short perfectly great businesses. It's not necessarily a great idea, but you can do it. Um, valuation, you know, being a primary driver of shorts. Uh, I think I think people kind of understand that that's generally a bad idea, but but that's that's not how most short sellers approach it. Um, I think time horizon is probably a big, big difference um, or a big thing that people don't understand. So I think in general, I think at least I view most shorts as kind of shorter term oriented and a little more trading oriented. Um, so I see like I, a common thing I see is somebody pulling up an old, you know, like a two or three year old short pitch um, and sort of giving somebody a gotcha that they got it wrong. Um, and I think most of the time that's not necessarily what the short seller is going for. You know, they're, they might have a six month time horizon or three month time horizon, and there's some event that they're looking for. Um, and maybe they got it right. Maybe they didn't, but usually, um, I, I don't think they're necessarily, I don't think they necessarily have the same time horizon that longs do. Um, and then what else? I think those, those are kind of the main ones. Um, Moral, you know, there, you see a lot of moral crusades, and and you know, I think some short sellers have that as as their approach, but I think most most don't, and most realize that having sort of a moral element is is you know, if, if anything, probably a bad idea for for a short seller. Yeah, and and ladder attacks, they don't, they're not real, right? No, they're friendly. Yeah, yeah no, George is winking at us. No, but <laughs> seriously, <laughs> what? So you. In your presentation, you lay out kind of how you, what your strategy is for targeting shorts. Can you yep. maybe explain what that is for anyone who hasn't seen the presentation? And then, sure, has this changed over time, or did you kind of always have this strategy since starting Upslope? Yeah, so my, I'd say my approach to shorts has changed a bit over time. Um, really, the SPAC bubble was the biggest driver of that change. So before. In the before times, before the SPAC bubble, I, my shorts tended to be, you know, nine out of 10 of them were pretty boring companies. So, 
there were cyclicals that were, you know, I thought were going to roll over or melting ice cubes. Um, so like the classic, like I was short Franklin resources, you know, Franklin Templeton um, for, for years and Owens, Illinois, a, a glass bottle company. Like those were the typical shorts that I tended to focus on. Um, where they just kind of ground down over time and they'd, they'd underperform the market and, you know, you know, occasionally have little blowups here and there. Um, and so I, I tended to focus on those. They, they were, they'd be sized smaller than my longs, but they're, they'd still be kind of chunkier positions. So, you know, maybe two, three, 4% positions. Um, and then I, you know, I did a few fads and frauds, but they were really the exception. And, um, you know, so I, I, I generally found them to be too much of a headache and, you know, I, I just didn't enjoy, enjoy the process. Um, then this back bubble came along and it was just this fire hose of ideas. Um, it, it was just, and, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a one man band. So part of it was, was the, the practical reality of trying to come up with a strategy for dealing with all these obvious opportunities, um, and not, not getting blown up in some form. Um, so I, you know, I, I've observed others and, and, you know, other successful short sellers and, um, you know, came up with an approach to deal with the, the sort of fads and frauds and SPACs, um, where it was much more of a basket approach, um, and, you know, much smaller position size and kind of go through a checklist of things that I was looking for, for fads and frauds and say, okay, it, this this company meets these you know checks off these five boxes. I'm good to put on a 50 basis point short position in the company. Um, I don't need to, you know, I I don't need to know everything there there ever is to know about the electric vehicle industry or something like that. I you know I know this is a, a fraud in some form, so no need to to overcomplicate it. Um, so I sort of honed that that element of the short strategy, and it wasn't necessarily a wholesale change to only focusing on those. Um, but you know, as sort of a subset of my shorts, um, you know, developed this strategy, and I think that you know that bucket has kind of come and gone over time. So I I think you know at its peak, I probably had you know a fifteen percent short position in in spacs total. So it might be you know thirty different spacs totaling up to 15% or something along those lines. Um, and then, you know, nowadays it's closer to like five or 6%. And so sort it's sort of pulled back a little bit. Um, but I still do, you know, still do the traditional melting ice cubes and cyclicals. Um, still, you know, still short some, uh, some, some sort of more quality type stocks, you know, where I think somebody, people view it as a compounder, but it's, it's, you know, in my opinion, it's not, um, so still have sort of all those different buckets. Yeah, I do want to talk about, I think you're referencing maybe a, a flip uh, as you coined it, which I and want to talk too. about later. Okay, yeah. yeah. So that, yeah. that's a different one, but I want to talk about that because I think sure. that was quite interesting. Uh, but in your presentation, which we will link in the show notes for anyone interested, and you can either DM us or email us and we'll share it. But you have this present or this chart that I might share the screen with, but it's pretty easy to describe. You just have one the y-axis as odds of being profitable, and then the bottom axis is mental oh. health cost, right? And you yep. have fads and frauds both kind of in the upper right. So the odds of being profitable are super high or maybe the highest, yep. but they're very stressful. So can you talk about why they're so profitable, but also stressful at the, at the same time? Yeah, so I think um, they 
I think they tend to be more profitable because you can figure out the ultimate endpoint for where the the stock is going to go with with a pretty high degree of confidence. Um, so the the easiest example, and and they're definitely not, and it, I guess this wasn't easy, and and they're definitely not all this this sort of perfect. But Tattooed Chef was sort of the prototypical example here. Um, where I think, you know, you could research a company and, and you could be very confident that it was eventually going to be a zero, um, because it was, you know, the story didn't make sense. The financial model didn't make sense. It was a, it was a, a fad that, you know, benefited from the pandemic and sort of a point in time bubble in the market. Um, and at one point, you know, valuation got, I forget what its peak valuation was, but it was, it was chunky for, for, for something that was probably going to be a zero. Um, and so you, you could, you could be very confident that you knew where that was going to go. Um, now the mental health cost element and the stress of managing a position like that, you know, you're obvious it's, it's, if it's that obvious, you're, you know, you're not going to be the only one that sees it. Um, so short interest is going to be high management is going to be you know, tempted to sort of promote and, and push the stock as much as possible. Um, you know, I remember being short tattooed chef kind of in the early days. And I think it, you know, had one of many short squeezes where it was up kind of 10 to 20% in the middle of the day on no news that I could find. Um, and eventually I remember it happened one time where the stock spiked, you know, something like 20%. And I did a little digging and I found out that this penny stock newsletter guy who used to be on Fox Business had been charged. I think I think he'd been barred by FINRA at this point, um, but he had just put out a newsletter promoting Tattooed Chef. Um, so stuff like that happens. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's you can you can sort of laugh at it because, you know, it's not real and it's going to give it back at some point And, you know, the end result. But but you also have to manage your risk and you have to be realistic about, you know, how, how much you can handle, how much pain you can handle in the short term. So that's where sizing, I think, comes in and, um, you know, position management. Um, but right, the, right. there's a lot, you're, you're fighting a lot of stuff, even if you do know the, you know, what the actual end result is. Okay. And you mentioned Tattooed Chef, but you don't have to give the specific examples right. there. But what are some characteristics? Maybe we'll hit fads first. Because I know they can be slightly different, and sometimes maybe the best opportunity you can you can correct me if I'm wrong is when it's both a fad and a fraud. But what are some characteristics of a fad that you're looking for? You know, generally. Yeah, um, I mean, I think of it, it. I think of it as kind of know it when you see it, which is not probably not a very satisfying answer. But like tattooed chef was, I, I'm I'm guessing most people are actually not familiar with with the company and their products, but it, it was a, um, <clears throat> so a, a vegetarian, like frozen foods company, um, sort of a, a trendy, you know, trendy frozen foods company. Um, and they, you know, they benefited from the pandemic from kind of launching right around then. Um, and, you know, people were staying at home and, and order eating more frozen meals at home. Um, and they played on to this, they sort of, even though they had no, there's nothing proprietary to what they were doing. They were just coming up with vegetarian meals. 
um, they sort of glommed on to the beyond meat and like the fake meat trend. Um, even though they, you know, like I said, they had, there was nothing that they were doing that was proprietary or, or unique about it. Um, so I think, you know, to me, that was, that was an obvious sort of fad that they were glomming onto. Um, and I think you mentioned, you know, ideally in some ways you have fads and frauds combined. And I, in my mind, I sort of meshed the two of them together because that's that, especially with the SPAC boom, I think there are so many SPACs that combine both of those things. Um, so like, a, you know, so many of the EV SPACs, the electric vehicle SPACs, I think hit, hit both of those categories. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, some, I think sometimes fad is maybe too strong of a word that, that I use, but, um, you know, like I said, you still, you still kind of know it when you see it. On the, on the fraud side, what are some of the signals you're looking for? I'm sure a lot of people, when they hear like fraud, they think Enron or something that's like yeah. massive, whereas maybe there's probably some more simple red flags to identify. Yeah. What are some of those that you were looking for? Yeah. I, so I'd say for me, I, I'm not as, uh, I'd say I'm probably not as hardcore of like a fraud hunter as, as some short sellers are. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a lighter, a lighter version of fraud, if you will, that, that I'm looking for. So I, I think like shady promoters. Um, so like I said, the, this guy who'd been barred by FINRA promoting tattooed chef, like that's a sign to me that there's something probably wrong with tattooed chef itself. If this guy is glommed onto it, I mean, it, it, in theory, he could, he could do it all on his own, but um, it's a sign. So I think aggressive promotion. Um, I mean, there are some obviously, you know, general accounting red flags. So changing auditors, stuff like that, you know, that people know about um, one. of So in the, before this back boom, I was short a company called Eros International, which was back then it was known as the the quote unquote Netflix of India. Um, and I don't know that fraud was ever proven, but I think it was a pretty, you know, people suspected fraud. And one of the big red flags there was they, they just had this ballooning receivables balance. So they always showed really impressive revenue growth. And then at the same time, though, the cash never actually showed up. So receivables kept going up and up and up. And um, then they'd get called out on it, you know, on earnings calls, analysts would push back and say, hey, what's what's with the receivable growth? And they'd say, oh, no, we'll get it under control. And then the next earnings call, revenue growth would suddenly stop. Receivables would get a little bit under control. And so you could see the push and pull where where they could either deliver revenue growth or or you know, manage receivables, but not both at the same time. Um, so to me, you know, that's, that's sort of an obvious sign that something is, is not right. Um, but I, I don't know. I think, I think those are say promoters and, uh, you know, some of the red flags I kind of listed on that, that slide, uh, let's see, I can, I can mention a few of them. Right. You did have, yeah, I think it was maybe two dozen. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. When, they, yeah. when, uh, when management teams on the call talk about controlling the accounting, I think that might've been uh, a red flag as well. Right. Cause they're like, well, I shouldn't, shouldn't that just be, you know, taking care of itself, but whatever. yeah, I, I think, um, just to highlight a few of them, I mean, I think, so going after shorts, I think any, any management team that, so one of the things I find interesting is, you know, when you see an activist short report come out, um, just watching the reaction of the company 
Um, you know, if they if they actually go out and sue somebody, that's that's usually a pretty good sign that something's wrong. Um, I think there's there's pretty good research that that uh, those stocks tend to underperform. Um, what do you I think? Oh. What do you think is a good reaction to a short report? Like, what's what should management do if they see it? Just not care. I think in general, just not care. Um, I mean, I think it's just sort of th- thinking out loud. It, it, in theory, if you had a short report come out and the stock went down, you know, a lot, 10, 10%, 20%, um, acknowledging it might be okay. But I think, you know, I think the, I, I sort of grimace, at least if I, if I owned a stock when that, you know, if I was long a stock and, uh, a short report came out and that happened and management put out a statement and, you know, snide remarks about short sellers, you know, being, you know, evil or standing to profit from this or, you know, any, any kind of threats whatsoever to me is a, is a red flag, but just sort of acknowledging, you know, acknowledging it is, is maybe okay. Um, saying, you know, we, we believe in the business and that's it. I mean, they, I think in general, they just shouldn't care too much. So. That makes sense. Yeah. What? All right, wait. Let's let's get through more. Any other okay. important? Yeah, red flags oh. that you can. Yeah, you see. Uh so I think re- related party stuff. I think is always is always a big red flag. Um, Any examples that come to mind there? Uh if you don't want to call them out, you don't don't feel like, to, like you need to. <laughs> I, I mean, what one interesting one in. Um, you know, frankly, it hasn't worked out as as the way I thought it would over time. Is uh, this company Coke Consolidated, one of the Coke bottlers? Um, they have an interesting one where they are you either of you familiar with this this story? No. Um, so it's a Coke bottler uh, on the southeast of the U.S. Uh, it's a really strange company, um, and they're. Their CEO, so in their in their actual 10K, they, I, I'm forgetting the exact line, but um, their company says, I think their their company motto or something is along the lines of, you know, our purpose is to honor God. Um, and their CEO is seemed, I, you know, is clearly a very religious character. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, However, if you go through their, you know, their proxy, you see that he's, you know, he leases, he he owns a bunch of the buildings and and you know uses a corporate jet and sort of pays himself very generously um, for you know considering this is a relatively small, you know, it's kind of a mid cap company. Um, so just, I, I always thought that was an interesting, very quirky, quirky company. Um, you know, where the related party stuff doesn't really jibe with kind of the, the messaging of the, the CEO. Um, so like I said, we'll, we'll see how that, how that one turns out someday though. It, it is, I think, yeah, like you said, there's nothing wrong with being a leader at a company and being religious, but yep. commingling the two feels like you're doing it to ins- promote the business to, you yeah. know, other, other people that are religious. So I think that's that's one we've seen too, where it's like it kind of feels like when you're when you're doing it for the greater good, or you start to invoke that, yeah. it starts to feel like a red flag. 
Yeah, especially when I think some of the, like I said, the related party actions are not consistent with the greater the greater good. At least from from the outside, that's what it looks like. Um, Makes sense. Any others? Not not examples, but any other red yeah. flags? Yeah. Uh, so it probably seems like a throwaway one, but little little obvious lies. Um, I always I always you know that's something that I pay a lot of attention to. I think people roll their eyes sometimes when I point things out. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I remember one CEO going on mad money a few years ago and he was, he had been buying, buying stock and he is a very promotional, I won't name names or I'll try not to, uh, he's a very promotional guy. And he had been talking about Kramer asked him about, you know, how, Oh, I, I see you've been buying shares recently. You know, this is a good sign. And he just, the CEO you could you could watch it and see he was just lying through his teeth. But he said, "Oh, I really wanted to buy more. I had my, you know, had my buy order in, you know, that day, but it just barely missed my price before the close. And now it's like the blackout window now, so I can't buy more. Um, but just just stuff like that, because I think you know it, it's sort of the the cockroach theory where you know you you see the little obvious lies, you know, you know, there's more behind it. Um, and so I I. I, I pay attention to, to stuff like that. Now, is this another good example, which I guess this one has been sort of revolved because the entire management team is gone now, but back in, I believe it was 2018, 2019, the Peloton CEO and founder went on CNBC and said, we're like, it was either we're surprisingly profitable or we're incredibly profitable, something along those uh-huh. lines. And then the S1 came out and they went public and you could see that they're hemorrhaging money. Is that a clear example of like, okay, that would be a big red flag for you for uh that's a company I might want to look at. Yeah. I, I didn't look at it, but yes, it would be. Okay. All right. What are, what are some of the most memorable shorts, short positions that you've had where it was either for good reasons or bad reasons, like something that ended up going totally against you or something that was like the most chaotic or uh, what's the term you use most detrimental to your mental health. A long list of those. Um, I, so Eros, the one, the Netflix of India, that, that one, I mean, that was, that was early on in, in, you know, my, my, uh, in Upslope's existence. Um, That was memorable just because of, it was, I mean, everything about it was kind of hard to believe the, just how obvious the, you know, I won't use the F word, but how obvious the sort of scamminess of management was. And, you know, like I said, there's this push and pull between revenue growth and and receivables and um, they would frequently miss. um, So they would say, we're going to, first of all, they wouldn't tell you when they were going to report earnings. And then they'd say, okay, fine, we'll report earnings, you know, really late in the quarter. We'll, and they'd give you like 24 hours notice of when the earnings call would be. And then the earnings call would come and they still wouldn't have put out their press release for earnings because, I mean, it was, you know, they'd put it out half an hour into, into the earnings call. Um, so it was just, that that was really, you know, one of my earlier exposures to kind of, uh blatant manipulation or or promotion or whatever you want to call it. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm always afraid to use the F word, but, um, and I think, you know, probably related to that, they, so Eros actually sued a bunch of folks on Twitter um, 
So they, you know, it, it was a pretty contested stock. There, it was a pretty well-known short thesis, and I forget how many people they roped into this lawsuit, but they actually sued. I want to say it was almost a dozen uh, anonymous Twitter people, um, which became not anonymous uh, through the lawsuit. Um, so I, I just I remember, you know, when the lawsuit came out, being worried that, you know, it making sure that I hadn't said too much about Eros and that I wasn't going to get roped into some, some lawsuit that I, you know, had nothing to do with. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was an interesting, uh, case study, I guess. Have you found it easier or do you prefer to just be kind of quiet about active shorts? Uh, it kind of depends. I think, I think for, for the ones that are working, I'd rather not mention them. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes they, sometimes there's a narrative that I see out there that I, I I don't know. It just kind of offends me in some way, and it's really hard to resist not not kind of poking it a little bit. Um, but I, I think in general, that's that's probably where I've wound up. Is you know, I'd, I'd kind of rather keep a little more a little more quiet. Um, but like I said, sometimes I think the, the narrative is just too too ridiculous to resist. Yeah, that's understandable. Okay, so I think we, we've touched on maybe some of the characteristics in trying to identify prospective shorts. But like you said, it's competitive. There's a lot of people out there that can identify these. Yeah. How do you think about the portfolio management side of things? You mentioned that you've become a little more diversified over time. Just any thoughts on managing a long short book overall? Yeah. Um, so, like I said, I think I've become more diversified, probably, probably just through the addition of of this this kind of fraud and fad. You know, I, I called it the SPAC plus short basket. Um, you know, so it's it's I've got sort of my regular way shorts. You know, any cyclicals. Um, you know, anything that I think is going to break fundamentally in some form. And then I've got sort of the frauds and fads and SPACs on the other hand. Um, and so really it's just kind of making room for those and and keeping an eye on aggregate exposure for those fraud and fad sh- shorts, making sure that you know aggregate exposure doesn't get too big. Um, keeping positions, you know, individual positions right sized. So I think there's always a delicate balance between, you know, where you're you're kind of I'd say more passively short frauds and fads where you don't know when necessarily something's going to break, you know, eventually it will. Um, and for those, you know, I try to keep position sizes really small so they can be 25 to 70 basis points or so is kind of typical. Um, and then once things really start to break, um, so like tattoo chef in, in the end, you could, you can kind of push it a little bit more, um, maybe 150 basis points if you get really, really adventurous. Um, and, um, you know, but, but like I said, yeah, I think you need to manage around events. And, um, one thing that's, I think both frustrating and an opportunity for, for these type of shorts is because they, they're susceptible to squeezes and promotion. Um, you know, they do move around for non-fundamental reasons a lot. Um, so I think, the, the goal should generally be to you want to be in a position where you can add to the position, add to the short when that happens. So if you wake up tomorrow and this, you know, whatever sh- your short goes up 20% on zero news, um, 
you know, ideally you're, you're already small enough that you can add to that position. And then, you know, maybe when it pulls back, you, you, you ease off a little bit. Um, but it's, it's really kind of managing around stuff like that. Do you think you'll ever see, I guess, as much of a, maybe gold mine might be the right term as what you saw during the SPAC bubble for trying to identify shorts? I think so. I I mean, I, if, if you had asked me, I, I wasn't investing during the, the first tech bubble in 99, but um, you know, if you had asked me in 2019, would we see that again? I, I probably would have said no. And um, I, I'm guessing these things kind of, you know, they just happen and it's, you know, it's impossible to know when, um, you know, maybe the next one will be 15 years from now or something, but um, I'm sure at some point it'll, something wild will happen again. Is the opportunity, are you still seeing the opportunity there today, like in some of these SPACs or has it for the most part, are, are you reverting kind of back to what you were, the, the way you were shorting prior to COVID? Yeah, I, I've reverted a, a fair amount back. So I think today, like I said, I think I'm probably five or 6% is sort of the big, the aggregate size of those, that type of short for me now. Um, You know, as, as they get smaller, you know, the, the actual market caps and enterprise values shrinking, um, you kind of want to shrink a little bit with them. Um, So it, it, it gets tougher, I think over time. Right. Now, one interesting thing I saw in your presentation was a what you call a flip. And I don't know, well, you can correct me if it seems like it's uncommon uh, in short selling, but maybe it is common. For, so for what me, exactly is that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's it's really so it's hard, it's I'd say hard psychologically, but it, the idea is, you know, if you're long a stock and you have as as you should, you have a clear thesis. And something happens that causes your thesis to to break. And it's a really obvious, you know, it's just, okay, I'm just going to cross off these, you know, two out of three of my thesis points and we're done. Um, You know, so you've, you, the thesis is broken enough that you know that you should exit, you know, promptly. Um, If you're in that position, you should, if you, if you also short, you should consider flipping short and not, so not just selling and exiting your long, but but actually flipping short. Um, and I guess my idea here is that if if you have such a clean thesis break, there will be other people that have, you know, that that have a similar, that are in a similar position and they're not going to move. Most people tend not to move that quickly um, because they're institutional constraints to, to exiting. You know, you're not just going to exit in one shot and, um, so usually I think it represents an opportunity to, you know, to, to get short and actually make some money out of, out of a bad situation. Um, the, the example I had, um, you know, I, I've, so it's, it's rare for me. I think I've done it maybe three, three or four times. Um, the sort of classic example for me was I was long a company called crown holdings. They make, uh, you know, beer and soda cans mostly. And they, and I, I had even pitched this. So I had, Crown was one of my biggest long positions. The, the, I think it was my first time at the ValueX Vail conference, which is where I made this short pitch. Um, so I think it was my first time there. I pitched Crown as a long idea. 
And about six months later, they announced uh, this horrible acquisition. Um, so Crown historically, you know, the, the pitch was basically that Crown was this ultra defensive company. They make beverage cans and food cans at the time. And they came out, I think it was like right before Christmas and said, we're going to buy a transit packaging company. And they completely blew up the long thesis because they made, you know, part of the company was now cyclical, whereas before it was not cyclical at all. Um, they were no longer going to be returning capital and, you know, accelerating a buyback program. They were going to be levering up and buying this cyclical thing. And then there was also no strategic rationale for the deal. It was just that they kind of, kind of liked the asset. Um, so I, I, you know, that, that was one where I flipped long from long to short, um, felt really stupid for, I think about a week or two, maybe even longer than that, but eventually I, I think it worked. Um, doesn't always work work great, but um, that that was sort of what got me thinking about this this framework of you know okay if you have a very clear thesis break you should consider actually shorting it. Did you come back to the conference and pitch it as a short? No. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, okay, so talking about the long book, I was when I was looking at your shareholder letter, I was gonna yeah. pick out a couple companies and try to ask some specific questions, but I. Aside from one, I really did not know any of the companies uh, whatsoever. And so it, it looks like a pretty unique uh, set of businesses. Is there any common characteristics that you're looking for in these businesses? And then maybe what's like, what's your typical holding period? Are you trying to hold forever? Is it like a never sell approach or is it you kind uh, of have a price target in mind? Yeah. So I, I'd say... My my style is I I'd say my personality more than anything um, is I I gravitate towards pretty defensive you know growing but but boring businesses so not like for me a growth company is like high single digit organic growth that's that's like a exciting growth stock for me um, so non cyclical good balance sheet um, easy to understand. Um, so like I covered the packaging sector when I was on the sell side. And so sectors like that and companies like that, where it's just, it's a simple product. I get the model, like I can figure out where they are in, you know, in the cycle and expectations. Um, you know, there's, I'd say I, I, I want to see either at least sort of a neutral secular trend. So it doesn't have to be some amazing, you know, growth tailwind, but I don't want it to be a melting ice cube that I'm, I'm trying to get cute with. Um, so I, I do try to fight the, my tendencies to, you know, to only buy boring defensive businesses because it's a, it's a tough way to, to, I'd say to make money over time if you only do that. Um, so I try to force myself out and, you know, and look at more value, but, you know, more, uh, it's a more cyclical stuff that, that might have a little more more zip if I'm I'm right. Um, I break up the longs into two categories. So core longs are more compounder types, um, and holding period on those tends to be multi-year. So I think you know of of core the core long positions today. I think average holding period is you know at least you know two three years. Um, biggest position in the portfolio is a company called Aptar. Uh, and I've owned that almost since inception of the strategy, so almost seven years. Um, and then tactical positions are more 
what I what I describe as more traditional value stocks. So they're not no one's going to mistake them for some world beating compounder. They're they you know they might have some hair. They might have you know have some leverage. They're definitely you know more cyclical. Um, and for those, I'm a little more price sensitive. I have a price target in mind. Um, and you know when the stock approaches that price target, I'm starting to to leave. And so um, ideally for those, I think holding period is like you know, six months to two years. Um, there's definitely more turnover in, in that category where, you know, if something something doesn't look right and it's not working out, I'll I'll cut it and move on. Um whereas with the the core positions, I'm I'm a, a lot more patient. Right. Now, what is your idea generation on the long side? Is it the traditional way? Is anything unique? Uh, I know the shorting stuff is kind of looking for the promotional CEO, stuff like that. But yeah. alongside, what's your research process? Where do you start? Yeah, so I I, I lean a lot on my, my sort of prior background. So when I was a banker, I covered the exchanges and brokers sector. So um, do a lot in, in that sector. I do a lot in the packaging sector, which is uh, what I covered when I was in uh, research. Um, and I... I mean, it's funny, they're two completely unrelated sectors, but I found them to be really good, especially packaging, I think is a great sector for long short investing because it's it sort of hits my 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 point on like easy, easy to understand. It's a very finite universe. Um, and on top of it, there there's this great diversity among among the companies within there. So there's, you know, you have some really cyclical, really tough businesses, you've got some really good steady businesses. Um, and kind of a range of management quality. Um, so I found in packaging that there's something, there's always something to do both long and short. Um, and the exchange sector is one that I, I've I've always liked because it's more, more on the long side. But um, you know, I, I love the business model of of exchanges where they've sort of moved away from this a bit, but where they they have leverage to volumes and volatility, um, and then sort of a secular trend over time of people you know, uh, investing more and, you know, more individuals investing more and becoming more sophisticated, um, you know, things becoming more electronic and more profitable for the exchanges. Yeah. Are there any, I guess maybe I should rephrase, uh, how do you get comfortable with some of the markets that you're investing in? So when I was looking through your long book, there was a lot of markets that I've never personally invested in. I'm trying to remember them right now. I know mm-hmm. that I saw Switzerland. Yep. Some others. Norway. Is there yep. anything that like, I don't know, what do you look for to get comfortable investing in those markets? Does it feel that yeah. different than investing in the US? Um not I guess not at this point. <laughs> I trying to think if there was, I'm sure there was sort of a, a learning period where, you know, where I, I got used to it. I mean, I think sometimes the disclosures are definitely a little slower, um, you know, just in, in terms of, um, you know, reporting can be less frequent and and that's something you just have to get used to. Um, I think in general, like I, I, so part of, you know, I mentioned my focus is on mid caps mostly. And I think, to me, that's a little bit of, of a, it's clearly not perfect, but it's like a little bit of a check on governance. And it's like, if a company's made it to, to sort of the mid cap range, it's probably less likely to be super sketchy versus, you know, like if I'm, 
if I were buying a uh, <clears throat> you know two hundred million dollar stock on the London AIM exchange, like I'd be a lot more worried versus you know a, a five billion dollar Norwegian company. Um, but like I said, it's it's not perfect, but it's it's just a little bit of a, a check on it. Okay, unless Brett has any more questions, I think we've got the last one for you here, yep. which is if someone listening today is thinking about starting their own fund, let's uh, call it call it a long short fund, what advice would you give to them? Um so a few things. I think I think uh having your significant other, if if you have one, have, having that person on board hundred percent is like priority number one. Uh, number two is I think, uh, being aware that, uh, so when I, when I started my, before I started my, my fund, I talked to a lot of people and got sought advice from a lot of people who had done, done it before. Um, and I realized there are sort of two different paths or two different types of advice I would get. Um, some people would say, don't do it. There's absolutely you have almost zero percent chance of succeeding. You need to raise at least like half a billion dollars to be successful, and on and on and on. And then other people who say, yeah, just like keep your costs low and you know focus on what you're doing, and you know gave gave sort of general advice, like you know said it's it's tough, but if you really want to do it, go for it. Um, and so I sort of realized that you've got these two different types of people that give you advice and. You know, the they don't do it, you need to raise half a billion dollar types. Um, you know, I they're they're completely correct if your goal is to start a big asset management firm, uh, you know, and and be completely institutionalized. But if your interest is is in forming sort of a boutique, you know, one or two man band uh asset manager, and um you don't need to raise half a billion dollars, and it looks and feels and smells very different from you know, the, the big asset manager thing. So I think just keeping that in mind, um, you know, all, all of the advice is useful, but keeping that, that in mind that people have wildly different perspectives, uh, I think is important. Um, and then I think if you do go the, you know, the boutique route, um, just, you know, setting yourself up to succeed and, and to have as long a runway as possible to actually build a track record, um, I think is, is the best thing you can do. So the last thing you want is to have financial pressure while you're trying to develop a track record. So I think keeping your expenses low, you know, you, you don't need to do anything too crazy in the early days and, um, no one's going to care, you know, if, if you have, you know, some, some really impressive vendors, if, you know, right when you're starting out. So just, just making sure that you have the, the, the pressure kept off of you in those early days, I think is, is important. Okay, I think that's all the questions we have. So I guess for any listeners that want to learn more about you, see more of your work, what are the best places to do that? Uh, so my website, uh, it's just upslopecapital.com uh, and also on Twitter, Upslope Capital. Awesome. All right. Before we sign off, I want to throw a disclosure on this. Uh, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, George, for joining the Thank show, you. and we'll see you all next time. 